Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Back in 1992, the mantra of the Bill Clinton campaign was that it's the economy, stupid. Surprising, though, since the majority of American campaigns for president have always been about the economy. However, since the 1970s, that economy has been changing dramatically. It was only as far back as the Nixon administration that we were still on the gold standard. Things like derivatives didn't exist, subprime lending, globalization of money, and creative destruction in the economy didn't set up a paradigm for collapse. Presiding over so much of this change, watching all of it and directing some of it, has been Alan Greenspan. Sitting atop the Federal Reserve for over 18 years and serving five presidents, no one knew more about the inner and outer workings of the American economy. And now we get the first full-scale economic and personal biography of Greenspan in Sebastian Malaby's new book, The Man Who Knew, The Life and Times of Alan Greenspan. Sebastian Malaby is the Paul Volcker Senior Fellow in International Economics at the Council on Foreign Relations. He's a Washington Post columnist and spent 13 years at The Economist covering international finance. It is my pleasure to welcome Sebastian Malaby to the program to talk about the man who knew the life and times of Alan Greenspan. Sebastian, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to be with you, Jeff. It's great to have you here. One of the things that is so remarkable in looking at Greenspan, certainly on the professional side, is how dramatically the economy changed, the American economy and the world economy, during the 18 years he served in the Fed and really given his entire life in, in government. That's right. I mean, one of the things that drew me to this project and inspired me to spend more than five years on the research for this book was precisely that Alan Greenspan's public life from the time he joined on with the Nixon campaign in the late 60s to the time he resigned from the Fed uh, in 2006 you know, this was the period in which modern finance was created. So Alan Greenspan's story is really the story of the making of modern finance. And when you look at that, talk about some of those dramatic changes that, that he presided over, both those that happened as a result of his actions and those that happened because of other cir global circumstances. Well, I think two big things happened in these four decades from, from the late 60s on which did change finance dramatically. The first was technology. So the cost of the computers you needed to create a complex financial security fell by more than 99% from 1970 to 1990. So you could produce fancy derivatives, fancy mortgage securities way more cheaply than before. And that just was bound to mean that finance would become more complicated. The second big shift that took place was that you know, money went global. I mean, in the 60s, under the Bretton Woods system, the dollar was pegged to gold and there were capital controls preventing money from moving across borders, or at least trying to slow it down when it did that. And capitalism went global in the Greenspan era, and that also meant that everything became more complicated. The connectivity between economies increased. So you had a situation where, you know, if the U.S. subprime uh, sector went belly up, then it would have implications for the rest of the world economy at the same time. Talk a little bit about how Greenspan's views about the economy changed during this period of time. There, there were kind of parallel changes going on. Yes. I mean, he has a fascinating intellectual trajectory because 
in the uh, in the 50s and 60s, and I went and discovered all of his writings that had been lost and, you know, were in some cases in literally, you know, the basement of somebody living in the woods in Virginia uh, with a great fighting system, uh, you know. <laughs> I, I dug all this stuff out. And so I reconstructed a map of his mind before he was famous. And what you see there is a libertarian purist, you know, who believes that literally at one point he says in his lectures in 63 and 64, he says, you know, the creation of the Federal Reserve was a historic disaster. So the man who embodied the Federal Reserve later on, in fact, didn't believe it should have been created. So, you know, there are these, you know, you're right, there's an amazing evolution in Alan Greenspan's worldview. And what happened was, you know, he went from thinking that the government should essentially have hands off on finance to a, a, a grudging realization that because everything was getting, you know, more complicated, um, more global, more interconnected, there probably ought to be some regulation. And yet, because of that libertarian origin, he didn't have huge conviction about pushing it uh, proactively. To what degree was Greenspan willing to acknowledge that his views had changed? You know, we see in politicians so many times that even when their views evolve or, or their opinions change, they're not willing to come right out and acknowledge the degree to which those views have changed, either because of their own intellectual development or because of external circumstances. Yes, that's completely right. People don't like saying sorry, at least of all politicians. Um, Alan Greenspan kind of said sorry after the 2008 crisis, but actually, in my view, in a way that deepens the mystery and perpetuates the misunderstanding about him, you know, what he said was in a famous congressional hearing, I have found a flaw, in other words, a flaw in his worldview, meaning that he had thought that financial companies, banks, and so forth, would never take too much risk because they would blow themselves up and they didn't want to go bankrupt, so they wouldn't do that. Now, you know, people seized on that because it's kind of a dramatic phrase, right? I found a flaw in my ideology. Wow, you know, that sounds like big stuff from the most important financial statesman in the world. And so people came to the view that, you know, it, to avoid another crisis like 2008, we just had to avoid that flaw of thinking that banks would look after their own risks. So if we only regulated them more, you know, we'd be fine. In my view, that's just way too simple. I mean, Greenspan lived through crisis after crisis uh, during his career. You know, the Mexico went bust at least twice, all sorts of emerging market crises in Asia. You know, long-term capital management, the big hedge fund went bust in 1998 and almost brought the world's bond market down with it. So there were loads of cat catastrophic blow-ups on his watch. He knew that finance could go wrong. And, you know, one meaning of the title of my book is, you know, the man who knew. It's, it's the man who knew that finance was radically unstable. Um, so, uh, you know, he kind of admitted, what I'm saying is he kind of admitted that he had a mistake, but he sort of gave the wrong confession. <laughs> uh, and that has confused people about his legacy. One of the things that, that you talk about that he essentially knew and, and came to understand, he didn't accept early on, was simply and fundamentally the degree to which financial markets, no matter how much they, they were manipulated or no matter how much he trusted in, in the marketplace, that they were very fragile things. Yes, but um, the amazing thing is that, you know, I was the first writer to find his PhD thesis because 
when he was Fed chairman, friends of mine at the Wall Street Journal went and tried to get it. So they went off to New York University, where, which awarded the PhD, and went to the library, and the librarian said, sorry, we lost it. <laughs> so uh, that's funny coincidence. I mean, obviously, the Fed chairman didn't necessarily want people reading his PhD. Uh, and uh, I got it. Um, and when you read that, what's stunning about it is that the 1959 paper, which is the core of the thesis, is all about how financial bubbles are the thing that the central bank must deal with. And so Greenspan, there he is in 59, saying financial bubbles are key and they should always be pricked. And in the 1920s, that was the big mistake the Fed made. And yet on his own watch, when he was Fed chairman, he did not prick the bubble. Uh, and so he was the man who knew from really quite early on that finance was unstable. And the great intellectual mystery is, you know, he was the man who knew he was not the man who acted. Why not? Why did he focus more seemingly on inflation and fears about inflation rather than looking at some of the, these fragile aspects of the market with respect to both asset prices and leverage? That is a great question. And I mean, you know, he was focused, as you say, kind of on the price of eggs, on stabilizing stuff that you buy. Uh, he was not focused on the price of nest eggs. In other words, your 401k. That could go up and down crazy. And, you know, he would sort of ignore that. Why was that? Well, in my view, you know, Greenspan was a fantastic po politician. He was not only a great economist, he was a very devious and Machiavellian political operator. And he understood that if the central bank defined its mission in terms of stabilizing inflation, guess what? It would get it right because, you know, China was driving down import prices, technology was driving down prices. If the Fed said it wanted to stabilize inflation, it could do that and it would be viewed as a hero. On the other hand, if the Fed said it wanted to stabilize the stock market, well, I mean, good luck. That was extremely difficult. Now, I think that just because something is difficult doesn't mean you shouldn't try. And I think, therefore, that Greenspan is to be faulted in the course of a, an amazing public life that had more things that went right than went wrong. Nonetheless, he is to be faulted in a, in a serious way for not dealing with the bubble in subprime mortgages at the end of his tenure. What sense of historical context did he have? I mean, he certainly had a sense of what went on in the Gilded Age and the way that it led to the Depression. He, he was fascinated, as you talk about, by the railroad tycoons. To what extent was, was historical context relevant to him, for example, in the way that it was so relevant later to Ben Bernanke? Again, that's a great question, Jeff. I mean, he did, and this is the tantalizing and almost sort of Shakespearean tragic thing about him. He did talk to his colleagues at the Fed, you know, in the 1990s and 2000s about the example of the 1920s where, you know, there was an enormous bubble on Wall Street and when the crash came in 1929, it set up the system uh, for the 1930s depression. And he would invoke that example. He had a memory of that that was clearer than that of all his uh, colleagues on the Fed, or most of them. And yet, although he had that historical sensibility, it didn't actually, in the end, influence what he did. So that's, that's the tragedy of it. How did he see the impact of globalization and really the, the global free flow of money that really began in the 80s? Well, you know, the Greenspan era was also the era of sort of, you know, globalization, of the triumph of the American model 
at the center of that globalization. You know, I think one of the most astonishing statements of that triumphalism came from President Clinton in 1998 at the Denver meeting of the G8, where basically all the world's leaders of the, the top eight countries were there. And he basically, President Clinton said, you know, we've discovered uh, how to run a successful society. And basically it's the American model. And that American model was embodied and personified by Greenspan. He was the guru presiding over the economic success that made the United States um, the model country in the world, with Greenspan as the model financial statesman at the center of it. So Greenspan was disposed to view globalization as a very positive force that was bringing freedom and prosperity to hitherto poor countries in places like China. Um, and I don't think he saw enough the destabilizing potential in it. It's interesting to speculate, and albeit speculation, if if Greenspan had stayed around longer, had stayed at the Fed longer, how he might have responded specifically to the crisis of 2007 through 2009? Well, I do know one thing which helps to answer the question, which is that you know Greenspan, as it happens, was speaking publicly um, I was either on the day that Lehman Brothers went down, September the 15th, 2008, or possibly the following morning. He was very clear and unequivocal that the Fed essentially had to bail out the system, that it had to flood the markets with financial liquidity uh, to counteract the shock from Lehman going bust. Uh, and, you know, Bernanke got there, but I think he got there maybe about 24 hours later than Greenspan. So I think Greenspan would be even faster in bringing assistance to the financial system. One of the things clearly about Greenspan, and this, this sort of goes to the points that, that we touched on earlier, was his willingness, though, to be flexible, to change, to accommodate circumstance. Yes, that's right. He was certainly flexible. Um, when I was doing the research, you know, I was lucky to have um, some very smart uh, young people uh, helping me. Uh, and there were two at any one time. And I remember particularly that there was one who himself was a bit of a libertarian believer and would uh, you know, jump into my office every uh, you know, hour or two when he was doing the research, saying, look, look, I've read this transcript from the Federal Reserve you know, in um, you know, 1999, and here's Greenspan saying something, and then he said something different later. And I would say, look, look calm down, calm down. You know, it's normal for human beings to say things that aren't totally consistent. You know, you can't just ridicule somebody because they've got two different thoughts in their head. Or we all do that. Um, Greenspan was very smart, very flexible, very pragmatic in his uh, thinking. At the same time, as he was kind of a purist libertarian ideologue who believed in a minimal government, he was both things at once. Uh, and to me, that made him a fascinating subject for a biography. One of the things you talk about also is Greenspan's personal life, that, that he liked the fame and the celebrity that went with his positions in Washington. That is a deep human mystery and fascinating as well, because Greenspan was raised in a special kind of way. You know, he had a single mother um, who never remarried uh, and never had other kids. And so all of the maternal love was focused on this one boy, which had two effects that were kind of in tension with one another. One effect was that Greenspan, because he was the recipient of all this belief and love from his mother, he believed that he was great. He believed that he was destined to be, you know, a, a powerful, important person. On the same time, he was shy because he was overshadowed by the strong personality of his mother. He felt 
inadequate in social settings compared to her. And so the way he reconciled these two things is that he was too shy to just go out and charm people and, and gain fame and recognition because of how charming he was. He had to gain recognition by doing stuff and making money and getting power and achieving things. And so he worked his way up the system in Washington, becoming more and more powerful and prominent. And then he kind of wanted to reap that reward. And now he was famous and powerful. He wanted to show up at the A-list party and kind of feel the effect of that. And yet he was shy. So he would show up at these parties and people would watch him, kind of not really talking to people much and sort of moving through the crowd and not necessarily engaging very comfortably. And so it was this weird spectacle of somebody who would come to all the parties, apparently not appear to enjoy them, but something deep inside him, some demon, was driving him on to show up at the party anyway. And I think that does have to do with his upbringing. It's so fascinating. I, I don't know if, if this was in any way part of, of some of the ideas that, that emerged in all of this, but going back to Nixon and seeing the way he was in some ways responsible for mentoring and bringing forth both Alan Greenspan on one hand and Henry Kissinger on the other. There's a a, a unique nexus there somehow. Well, that's right. I mean, um, Henry Kissinger, in fact, went to the same high school as Alan Greenspan, which is an amazing coincidence. And they were both, you know, people who came to power in the 70s. And actually, it was in the Ford administration where Greenspan was the top economic figure and Kissinger was the top geopolitical foreign policy figure. And they would fight over turf on stuff like policy towards the oil market. You know, Kissinger would have one idea, Greenspan would have a different idea. And what's incredible is that, you know, in the 1970s, and this is wonderful for a historian, um, people had invented stuff like the tape recorder and the Xerox machine. They didn't yet know that it was dangerous <laughs> because, you know, if you made all these recordings, then somebody's going to find them later on. So the Nixon tapes are a famous example of that. And that was wonderful for me because I had Nixon on tape discussing all kinds of dirty tricks, which Greenspan was involved with. But then when it came to Kissinger, Kissinger also had his uh, friend conversations recorded sometimes. And so I could reconstruct these bureaucratic battles between Kissinger on the one hand and Greenspan on the other. And at one point, Kissinger's completely furious because the New York Times has run a negative story about him, basically calling him an idiot. And Kissinger turns around and says to his deputy, where did this negative story in the New York Times come from? And the deputy says, I think it was Alan Greenspan who leaked it to them. And Kissinger doesn't seem surprised at all. So Greenspan, in other words, he knew how to play tough in politics. We remember him as a brilliant economist. He was also a brilliant and mesmerizing politician. And they both had that need, as, as you were talking about before with respect to Greenspan, that need for celebrity. Absolutely. And you saw that in you know, the way they would show up at parties with beautiful women uh, on their arms. Um, there are various photographs. I think there's one I put into the um, insert in my book with um, Barbara Walters, the beautiful queen of television news, um, with the two of them, Kissinger and Greenspan. Uh, but actually, that was another battle that Greenspan won because he dated Barbara Walters for a decade and Kissinger did not. <laughs> Talk a little bit about early on his intellectual fascination with, with the kind of Randian libertarianism and the degree to, that that stayed or didn't stay with him. To what degree did that have influence later in his career? 
Well, I mean, you're absolutely right that the relationship with Ayn Rand was very powerful and very meaningful. Uh, Greenspan met Ayn Rand in his late 20s and went on to be sort of the editor of the economic portions of Ayn Rand's famous novel, Atlas Shrugged. So the stuff in there about economics and about steel was kind of, you know, had Greenspan's fingerprint on it. Uh, and that close alliance remained such that, you know, when Greenspan was sworn into the White House uh, in, as, as chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors in 1974, he invited three people. There was uh, Greenspan's mother and then Ayn Rand and her husband. Uh, so that was the, the, the tightness of the relationship. The interesting thing which you raise is how much did that really change what Greenspan did when he was in positions of power? And he would say that, you know, he said to me that when he first went into government, he took a short-term rental apartment so that he could quit if the government did something that violated his Randian principles. So he was very serious about sticking up for his libertarian views at the beginning. And, you know, when, when President Ford said, you know, Ford to New York City drop dead, that famous newspaper headline, mm -hmm. In fact, it was really it was really Greenspan to City drop dead because Greenspan was the libertarian advisor saying, never bail anything out, do not give any money to New York City and so forth. But over time, I think the libertarianism faded away and pragmatism won. And by the time Greenspan became Fed chairman, although he was capable of saying things, you know, he was kind of offline speaking in a sort of you know, among friends or something, he could say surprisingly radical libertarian things, but really his actions were driven by a pragmatism um, during that period as Fed chairman. Who did Greenspan respect? Who did he admire in general? And beyond that, of all the five presidents, six presidents that he served, who did he like the best? Who did he have the most respect for? Well, I think outside the presidency, you know, Milton Friedman was a big figure in his life, a friend of his in the 70s. Um, within the ranks of the presidents he worked with, uh, it's interesting, you know, I th he would say Gerald Ford was his favorite. I think that's because Ford absolutely adored Greenspan and pretty much, you know, would eat out of his hands. I mean, uh, one of the other economic advisors in the Ford administration who was kind of jealous of Greenspan's amazing influence, described Greenspan with Ford. He used to say he had a hypnotic effect on Ford. He would go in and see Ford and say, Mr. President, this is a very complicated issue, extremely complicated. And Ford's eyes would get big and round and go around in circles. And then Greenspan would unscramble this complexity that he had posited, and Ford would be sort of so grateful to him for demystifying the complexity of the economy for him. So Greenspan loved Ford, and that was partly because Ford loved Greenspan. I think others that Greenspan liked, I mean, he got on well with Clinton. He worked well with the Clinton administration. He did not like uh, George H.W. Bush. Uh, I'm not sure he that much liked George W. Bush either. Um, ironically, you know, this was a Republican libertarian Fed chairman, Greenspan, uh, but, um, you know, it was the rather moderate Ford, whom he got along with, and the Democrat Clinton came second. How does he view the Fed today? Greenspan today uh, would, I think, run the Fed very differently from how Janet Yellen runs it. You know, 
When Greenspan was in charge, there was one voice speaking on behalf of the Fed, and you had no doubt who was driving the policy and what the direction was, because Greenspan didn't let the other Fed governors and regional Fed presidents speak that much in public. If, if they did too much, he would you know, cut their legs from under them. Um, Janet Yellen is, you know, to be charitable, a more democratic figure, a more open figure, allows other people to, to speak out. But to be less charitable, she's a weaker leader. And I think what you see today is that the Fed is being attacked from all sides. It's being attacked from some people who think it's too tight, others think it's too loose. Uh, Donald Trump thinks that Janet Yellen is being political and is in the pocket of, uh, of the Obama White House. Hillary Clinton wants to restructure the regional Fed banks. Um, everybody has a view on how Janet Yellen should be doing something different. Uh, uh, that would not have happened without a big pushback in the Greenspan era. Greenspan was a more powerful public advocate. But in all fairness, the coverage of the Fed and and the the financial coverage in general from the media is so much different than it was in Greenspan's day. It's it not only the coverage of Janet Yellen, not only the coverage that's almost like a ball game every time there's an open markets meeting. But I mean, Stanley Fisher ha- you know makes a speech and it's covered by Bloomberg and CNBC and Fed, other Fed governors. It's a very different landscape in terms of the way the Fed is covered. Yes, Jeff, I think there's some truth to that. Um, And we live in a world of Twitter and blogs and everybody's got their opinion. And maybe it's just inevitable that the Fed will speak with multiple voices. But, uh, you know, when I did the research on Alan Greenspan and I really, you know, looked carefully at his methods, um, there's a lot that he did that shaped that environment. And so I think, you know, for example, um, if uh, another Fed a leader made a speech that got too much press attention. Like, supposing you had Stanley Fisher trying to do under Greenspan what he now does under Janet Yellen. <laughs> Fisher would have just been pushed out. And uh, I'm not making this up. I mean, this is what happened. There was a vice chairman, uh, Alan Blinder, who was an eminent Princeton economist who served under Greenspan, and he got too much attention in the press. And within, you know, a few months, he, you know, his reputation had taken a hit because Greenspan had basically, you know, the press did what Greenspan told them to do because he was such a, a mesmerizing speaker and journalists loved listening to him, loved access to him. And he kind of let it be known that maybe Blinder was soft on inflation and then that story got out. And so Blinder's reputation cratered because of Greenspan's power over the media. And this is a story that repeated itself. There was another Fed chairman, uh, sorry, another candidate to be Fed vice chairman. Clinton wanted to appoint him. This is Felix Raritan from Wall Street. And Greenspan didn't like him because Raritan was going to speak out too much. So what happened? Greenspan went to his friends in the Senate and said, look, you know, just don't confirm this guy. And Raritan had to withdraw his candidacy because Greenspan controlled the Washington scene in a way that Janet Yellen just does not. Sebastian Malaby. The book is The Man Who Knew, The Life and Times of Alan Greenspan. Sebastian, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. It's been a great conversation, Jeff. Thank you so much. Thank you.